You're listening to a sermon from Metro North Church in Goose Creek, South Carolina. If you'd like to connect with us, visit us online at metronorthchurch.com. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I know you were wanting to say that because you haven't said it to anybody yet, right? Thanks for saying it to me. I love seeing all the Christmas colors and some of you that are new today, I'm one of the leaders here. It can be hard being part of a big cozy family that's been together for many years, but we welcome you. I hope that you will leave experiencing the warmth of this church family. Where are we? Well, we don't have the classic little Christmas story today about Jesus in the manger. We're looking instead at a prayer of Jesus that he gave after he grew up because he wasn't just born to stay in a manger. He grew up to go to a cross. And our series is called God Send. You, you will use that this year probably when something gets sent to you and you didn't expect it. Often it's an event or it's good news of good fortune. And in John 17, if you turn there in your Bibles, what we're looking at right now is how God sent Jesus into our world in order to send us into the world. When did Jesus pray this intimate prayer? Well, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks that there were some significant things that happened at this area. He prayed it right in front of what's called the Kidron Brook. It was a little brook that went from the temple, and when you would kill animals that were punished for sin, the blood would go down through a drain into the Kidron Brook. Jesus is with his friends. He stops before the brook and it would have, the, the Mishnah, which are the ancient writings about uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, it said that that brook would have been running red with blood. Jesus is there. He looks up to heaven. It's dark. He's away from all the noise of the city, away from the light pollution. Think about your own life and all the lights from the screens. No screens, no sirens, no Christmas lights. He's standing in front of the brook. It's dark. It's silent. And we often get excited about three kings. We don't know if there were three kings that visited Jesus, but if you read the entire scripture, which I encourage you to do, three kings had significant events that were descendants of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus came and he was born into a line of Jewish kings. King number one we mentioned last week, David. David's son Absalom and his chief advisor, Ahithophel, turned on David. David went up to the brook. He didn't even have his shoes on. He was crying because his closest betrayed him. Jesus was just betrayed by Judas. Second king. You can go back and read about a guy named Josiah. Josiah went into the temple and found that there was a story of God that nobody remembered anymore. And he looked around, and everybody was worshiping false gods. They had united themselves to false gods. Look at this picture of the Asherah poles. Asherah poles were sacred trees. You would plant them up on a hill, and you'd go up to this sacred living tree, and you would ask for fertility. You would ask for gifts. Josiah decided, cut down the trees, go to the Kidron Brook, Break them, burn them, and put the ashes in the brook. He was a descendant of Jesus. King number three, Asa, same thing. 
found Asherah poles, burned them, brought them to the brook. Jesus stopped and prayed at the brook. Who did he pray for? He actually prayed for you. Now, this gets interesting. You say, Howard, prove that to me. You're telling me that Jesus prayed for me? John 17, verse 20, Jesus says to his father at the Kidron Brook, I don't ask for these only, my friends that can hear the prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The title today is called Jesus Prayed for You. And my burden, you ever been with a group of people and they start praying? And then they start praying for you? It's awkward. It's like, what are they going to say about me? But it's also really dignifying. Would you please stand as we enter into the end of Jesus' prayer? John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in them, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we know that this prayer 2,000 years ago was heard by you. And Lord, we believe that Jesus prayed for us today. It's amazing for us to consider this, Lord. I do pray that you would send your spirit, help us to understand what Jesus was praying for and change us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. Jesus prayed for three things, for those who would believe in him. What's the first? Jesus prayed for unity. Jesus prayed for unity. And if you're a guest today and you want to follow along in the message notes or you've been coming here a while and you want to just keep, uh, get, give us better attention, that's the first thing. Jesus prayed for unity. Look at verse 20. I ask that they may all be one, not two, that they may be one even as we are one. And just so God the Father really understands what Jesus wants, he says that they may become perfectly one. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may be very saddened and skeptical about the many denominations that are not very unified. You know, some people count 40,000 different Christian denominations, and you're thinking, Jesus prayed for unity? I'm not seeing it. There's a story, it's not true, it's apocryphal, of a newly ordained American Presbyterian minister who came over from Scotland to get a church going in America. 
It was in the days before email and phones, so he sent an urgent telegram to the clerk of his presbytery in Scotland because he was asked to do the funeral for a Methodist. Telegram he sent. Have been asked to do the funeral of a Methodist. Stop. Is it permissible to bury a Methodist? Stop. He received this short reply. Bury all the Methodists you can. Stop. Now, if you're a Methodist here, no offense. What was Jesus praying for when he prayed for unity? What is unity? What did Jesus mean by one? Did he mean what I would call the myth of let's just agree to disagree? You ever do that with somebody? You really believe something is true, and they don't believe it's true, and you both cop out. Well, let's just agree to disagree. The Christian story has truth, and facts do not budge. Did he pray for this? I don't believe so. Did he pray for a unity of preference or a unity of purpose, preference? Did he pray for what we would call uniformity at the expense of diversity? During the time of the Reformation, there was one big church, the Roman Catholic Church, and there was the Eastern Orthodox Church. There were Christians that said, if we keep following what the institutional organizational church wants, and we can't keep talking about where we disagree about truth, we're going to end up on the outside looking unified, but on the inside we're going to believe there's a totally different gospel about how you're saved. Jesus was not praying for external, institutional, organizational unity. Everybody exactly alike. That brings monotony. That brings boring sameness. It means we all wear the t-shirt but nobody knows what's really going on in the heart. No, Jesus was praying for relational unity. Jesus answers this question right there in Scripture about the nature of the unity that he prayed for. He actually says this, that they may be one even as we are one. What do you mean by being one, Jesus, even as we are one, Father, Son? God, remember, is three persons. In unity. We call that tri-unity. Remember, three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. At the center of the Christian story is a diverse unity. The greater context of this entire prayer, Jesus prays for the unity of purpose, not preference. John 17, 21 that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see the purpose? That's a purpose statement in Scripture. Whenever you're reading along and it says, so that, and there's something there, you're going to find out what the purpose is. I want them to have this incredible unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The nature of the unity Jesus prayed for was a church family unified in such a way that one day the world would be brought to a certain irrefutable conclusions concerning God's love for his people. He sent his son, and the world would look at our abiding affection for each other. Take a look at this image so we can understand unity of purpose, not unity of preference. You have a conductor 
and you have an orchestra. Think about even today, the group up here. I mean, we had Ben Adams with a trumpet. Ben, what's your preference? It isn't drums. It's the trumpet. Now, I, per I personally kind of like the trumpet, but maybe some of you are like, I really enjoyed the electric guitar, which is what Carter was playing. Jesus is praying, and he's saying, my people are going to be like a divinely orchestrated family. There will be diversity within unity. There will be one mind. We all actually sang the same song. Did you notice that? Even though the trumpet was very distinct, Ben didn't go off and play his own song. He followed the conductor, which we would say is always Jesus, and we sang the same song. One mind, one effort, one purpose, not running off with your preference. Take a look at this image. We see this every time a football uh, team plays. And a lot of you know, I don't know a lot about football. But I've heard that Clemson and Alabama are doing pretty good. I talked about Clemson last week, so to be fair, let's take a look at Alabama. I don't know if you can see this. It's kind of small. They're very diverse, but what, right behind there is a coach holding the playbook. The team is so different. There's little guys, there's big guys, there's defense, there's offense, there's special teams, but there's one playbook. There's one playbook. We are on the same team. And by the way, those of you that are not Christians that say, I can't stand those 40,000 denominations, go ahead and visit five churches that are Christian. You know where they will agree? On the Apostles' Creed. For 2,000 years, every single one of those denominations will say, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And they will go on, it is not true that Christians do not agree on our unity of purpose. You say, Howard, this is all fine and well, but I've been around Christians and I happen to be one, and don't we seem to fight about our preferences and forget our purpose. Oh, I think so. I raised our children reading through the uh, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings. Let's, let's look at a small scene from the Fellowship of the Rings. If you've never read it, just think of the name of that. There's a fellowship of different races. There's elves, there's dwarves, there's men, but there's one ring. They have one purpose, and I love this one scene. You have Gimli, who is a dwarf, and he's with his good friend Legolas, who is an elf, and they're going to go through an elvish country. The goal, get through the country. But when they get there, the elves of Lothlorien insist that Gimli the dwarf put on a blindfold. Gimli's not allowed, as a dwarf, to see the beauties of the elvish, elfish land. Gimli says, no way, I have a preference. I will walk free or I will leave. Gimli the dwarf draws out his battle axe. The elves bend their bows. And Legolas the elf cries, you dwarves, you are so stubborn. But Aragorn, their future king and leader, tells Haldir, this elf that's insisting on the blindfolding, that all will be blindfolded. Legolas, gives it, Legolas is not happy. He looks at Aragorn and he says these words. Take a look at the slide. Legolas says, Here all our enemies are enemies of the one enemy, unity of purpose. And yet I must walk blind 
while the sun is merry in the woodland under leaves of gold. Legolas is saying, I prefer to see because boy can an elf see beauty. But then Halder says, folly it may seem. Indeed, in nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. Jesus prays for unity of purpose, not unity of preference. A.W. Tozer helps us look at this spiritually. Most of you will not be able to see this quote. Some of you will, but let me read it and listen closely. A.W. Tozer, Christian pastor and writer, says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. I don't want to lose most of you because Jesus prayed for you. And it's very important to Jesus that you have unity. But it's not a unity where your preference becomes connected to others. It's a unity of His greater purpose. You say, Howard, how? I want to live into this prayer. I want to see it come true in my life because I don't feel very connected, very unified. I feel very often on the outside. Vertical unity, that's unity that we experience with our relationship with God, must occur before horizontal unity. Prioritizing fellowship with one another Above fellowship with God will destroy both. Take a look at this bicycle wheel. The closer you can move toward union with God, the closer you're going to get to each other. We resemble the spokes. We all have our little spot in community, but the closer we move to God, the closer we are to each other. And here's something very important. If you place your preference as the center point you'll end up with a club, and it'll be fun. Or a cult, because you've taken a truth from Scripture and made it the center and your preferred center, or you'll experience a clique. Christianity is not a clique. It's not a cult. It's not a club. And some of you are stuck in a clique and you don't even know it. Or you know someone that's in a clique, and it really frustrates you. Let me explain to you. We were talking uh, this week, John and, my, John and Carter and I talk each week just about how we can grow and how we build our community. And we had this great conversation about cliques. Here's a couple of things we found out, and maybe they will help you. You're enjoying everybody in the community, and all of a sudden you find out that you get real close with somebody now, there's a subtle difference between being close with somebody who's then close with somebody and then the group becomes closed. How does close move to closed? It has everything to do with preference. Here's what happens. Somebody in the church does something and it isn't your cup of tea. You distaste 
something someone else does. Maybe it's a leader. Maybe a leader says, I want us to do this, and someone goes, that's not my cup of tea. You go to somebody else and you find out that they too share your distaste, and what started as a relationship has now turned into resentment. You both now find somebody else that shares your distaste, and then guess what grows? If three people agree on anything, now you distrust somebody else. And what happens when you distrust somebody else? Distance. Jesus says, Father, I am standing here at a brook where kings have had significant experiences, and I'm going to pray for Metro North Church that they will have a unity of purpose, which means they no longer can have a unity of preference. Oh, Jesus, that's messing with our lives. That's not typically how we experience one another. Secondly, Jesus not only prayed for unity, he prayed for community. Oh, this is wonderful. It's all about love. And if you're used to thinking in straight lines and sharp angles, Jesus prays during the prayer in spirals, swirls, twists, because he prays about love which is never a straight line. Let's look at verse 23, how he does this. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, some of you are kind of sleepy today. You're just like, I don't know, too much Christmas uh, chocolate like I've been enjoying. Wake up a little bit right now, okay? And, and get it. I mean, this is going to sound real weird. This is, this, is, this is how Jesus is expressing his love. At the center of the universe is a relationship. I know many of you think that God's out there with power. There is not a singular power that exists out there. Some of you actually think that God's out there with a yo-yo, just playing with his yo-yo, creating a world, creating people. We do not, if you're a Christian, serve a singular, omnipowerful being. We said this earlier. God is three persons united in love. I could play all day with a yo-yo and never have to deal with any of you people. God does not sit playing with a yo-yo. He never has. Because God, in His essence, has always been community. At the center of the universe is a relationship, a community of love. It is out of that relationship and for that relationship that we were created and redeemed. Jesus says it with these words, Father, I desire them to be with me. And that the same love with which you loved me may be in them. This, is, this blows my mind. Father, you and I have been sharing love forever. We don't play with yo-yos. We interact and involve ourselves in the lives of each other. And I want those that are going to be sitting at Metro North Church in 2018, I'm praying that they will experience the same love. Oh, what a prayer. What a prayer. He uses the word desire. It doesn't mean I just sort of wish it will happen. Many of you know that we're going to be heading out to Japan for my daughter's wedding. If I send you a postcard and I say, Tammy, wish you were here, 
you know full well that I don't have the power to wish you anywhere. You're going to be with Justin, enjoying your life here. When Jesus uses the word desire, it's a unique Greek word which means I'm going to wish it and it will happen. Father, I desire that they are with me. We did prepositions last week. This is a unique preposition which actually means that I want them in the center of our lives with me. He desires, and I think we have a chart of that again, this idea of right there in the middle, right there in the middle, I want them to be with me. The love that you and I share, Father, I want it in them. I in them. Those are the last three words of his prayer. This is all about community. I know it sounds strange. I know it sounds mystical. Community. We are different from others and things around us, and yet at the same time we are inseparably entwined with things. Community is necessary for grasping the reality of the world that's around us. To experience community being in the world the world has to enter into you. I know this is going to sound weird, but follow me. The air that you're breathing, it's outside of you, yes? Wait a minute. You guys just took a breath. Now the air that was inside of, outside of you in the world is now in you. I smelled this morning the smell of, of uh, baked bagels. Ah, The smell was in the air outside of me, but once I smelled it, the smell was in me. The air was in me. Things inside and outside of us, they form, God is saying, something like a Mobius strip. You familiar with a Mobius strip? We have an image of one. This is a strip of paper that begins as two sides. But when you make the strip mysteriously, it only has one side and one edge, a community. It's a group of different, very different, interdependent people inhabiting the same place, sharing a life of love together. We are designed out of the community of God to be fully alive inside the intimacy at the center of reality. Some of you are here and you just have a hard time believing in God. But everybody here believes in love. I know you do. But I would ask you if you don't believe in God, how do you warrant love? Impersonality that created everything? Christianity says three persons have always been united in love. Because we are fully loved by God, we can fully love others. We're designed in love, for love. Now, my mental hard drive seriously blew up when I read this. A lot of the theologians call this perichoresis. Some of you that are going, I'm so lost right now, but it sounds kind of interesting. Go and read about this. It's all about love. Let me make it so simple. Look at this picture. Have you ever seen a pregnant woman? Christmas is all about a pregnant woman. This is this beautiful example of community because the baby is in the mom and, get this, the mom is in the baby. Even after the baby is born, why does the baby howl? Because it was in the mom. 
the baby wants to go right to the breast milk, which will go into the baby, and that baby will smile at that mom who's distinct from that baby, and that smile will go into that mom. Mothers, do you know what I'm talking about? There is no mom or baby without mutual indwelling, loving community. And Jesus prays that we would have that kind of sharing back and forth. Nothing grieves the wish of Christ more than people who won't work at community. God grants redemption, and through hard relationships, He does not grant, grant exemptions. The Chinese church has been growing lately, and one of the members of the Chinese church said this, Help each one of us, gracious Father, to live in such magnanimity and restraint that the head of the church may never have to say to any of us, this is my body broken by you. All right, Howard. Jesus prayed for this. I don't know if I'm doing so, so hot here. Relationships are hard. I get that. I get that. I have had some difficult, difficult relationships in my life. Let me give you five specific secrets that will help you get unstuck if you don't do relationships well. Number one, just use words and repent. I've been doing this with my staff. I feel like they're getting sick of me, but I say, thank you for that. I want to repent. I want to do something different so I don't continue to hurt this relationship. Repentance means a total change. Number two, forgive. Forgive. Number three, be honest. Number four, be available to others. All of this mystical talk of I am in you, you are in me. If you never are available to be around other people, don't get all excited about this prayer. Let me talk to all the men in their man caves. I love a man cave. But you cannot barricade your life off and hope for a flourishing marriage. I don't know if women have women caves, but where do you go? Because relationships are just, I don't got time for that. Where do you go to make yourself unavailable to others? Often many of you, when you're even out in public, you could be interacting with everybody, but you go here. I don't know what it looks like for you, but children, if you have children, community won't work if you are not available to your children. Number five, you've got to be accountable to others. Oh, I so much love tumbling into your life and you tumbling into mine. Well, you need to answer for something that you did that was very hurtful to somebody else that we both know. Oh, don't you be talking to me about that. You have to be accountable to others if you want to experience community. Do you make room in your life for others? Do you barricade your life for others? Which of us, how many of us in this room, it's a full room, feel empty? And it's related to the fact that you are not in community. Which of you can say that God has not only come into this world as a baby and died on the cross, but he's come into your life 
And it's not this Christmas about the poinsettias. It's not about the candles. It's not about the cards. But you can say, he's come into my life. Jesus prayed for unity. Jesus prayed for community. And lastly, Jesus prayed for you to witness to the mission of God. Now go back to that first point. If it's not about our preferences, but it's about purpose, it's all about that God has a mission for his church. We are to be sharing this incredible story of the forgiveness of God in Christ. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. We are sent as witnesses of the story. Remember, we came from love, the triune God, for love, the difficult kind. You say, Howard, I'm supposed to be sent as a witness? Yes. To who? To people in your life who are close to you, far from God. I know everybody in here knows at least somebody in their family, in their neighborhood. They are so close to you and they're so far from God. When you differ over secondary issues and stay unified with this church family, it says something to our community. Because the story of the God-sent Son and His love is at the center. People can sense that about a community. The goal of unity is not some personal, subliminal purr in our soul where we all just feel this, this feeling. But the goal of unity is so that the world will know that God sent His Son and they'll trust Him. They'll trust the good God. You say, Howard, is there really a need for witnesses? We're living in Charleston. The greater Charleston area has a church everywhere. I am in unity with a bunch of denominational heads that are not Presbyterian, and we all dream about beginning new churches. I met with one of the leaders of what we call the Charleston Hub, which is we're all praying to see this story. We all believe in the Apostles' Creed. These are numbers that a guy named Neil sent me the other day when I said, do we really need witnesses right now in the greater Charleston area? Take a look. Let's own our own geography and our people. There are 45 new people that are moving here every day. How many of you moved here just in the last year? Raise your hand and take a look around. In our congregation, we've got a number of people that have moved here, 45 a day. Secondly, 761,000 people live in the greater Charleston area. Now, I was shocked when I saw that number. I didn't believe it. So I talked to two people that are part of our emergency disaster for all the counties, and they said, actually, it's more like 800,000. Only 10% are in a gospel-believing church. Now, this is huge. If this doesn't, okay, Jesus is praying 2,000 years ago. I want him unified. I want him loving on each other so that the world, that's nine out of every 10 people that you will see at a restaurant, that you will see at the mall, that you will see on your block. Nine out of ten are not in a church that has the story of Jesus infiltrating and influencing their life. Do we need to be witnesses? Oh, what, it's such an important time to do that. Jesus addresses God in a way at the end of the prayer where God was never addressed before. 
Jesus says in, in John 17, verse 25, O righteous Father. Now, when I even read that, I cringe because that means something's wrong. Notice, too, that when Jesus talks to his Father, he doesn't go on prayer autopilot. I often will do that. Okay, Lord, you know, help me, be with me, and let's have a good day today, Lord, and help me not to sin. The fact that we never see this used of Jesus speaking to God, he is not on autopilot. He is in a relationship where he's going to bring up something about the Father that cannot be erased. Oh, righteous Father, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you. In these know, you, know that you have sent me. I may know known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. What is to be done for a world who refuses to acknowledge and believe that God sent Jesus to save his people from their sins? Well, the righteous father would say, disconnection. If you don't want me and don't want a relationship, you, are, you will be disconnected and you will die. You will perish because you will refuse to share life in me. At the end of Revelation, the last book in the entire story, the glory of the Lord is made known, and it lights up everything. Now, go back to me to those Asherah poles, those sacred trees that would give you the gift of life, fertility. And the kings tore them down, burned them, threw them in the Kidron Brook, at the end of the story, in Revelation, it says that there is a lamp. Now, in the temple, the lamp was the shape of a tree, a sacred tree. But when John looks at the lamp, it says the lamp is a lamb. A lamb? A lamb is an animal that would have to die in the place of sinners. Because the righteous Father must punish sin. You know, Jesus kept saying, I desire that they see my glory, my essential essence, who, who I am, who we are. Remember the betrayal of Jesus at the brook. Remember the blood in the brook. Jesus is saying, Father, judge me with your righteousness so that my followers will never be judged because if they are not living in judgment, they can live in love. I know a lot of you say life's a journey. I don't think so. I think for most of you here, life is a courtroom. I'll tell you how I know that. I got dressed for a social function this week and I thought I looked pretty good. And my boys looked at me and they go, Dad, you're going to go out dressed like that? And I go, well, who are you guys, the fashion police? And they, one of them said, you know, that polo has been washed over and over and over. Put something else on. I love my boys, and I put something else on, and I think I looked a little bit better. But for many of you, it goes so much deeper. Life is a courtroom. And you need to hear today that when Jesus prayed to the righteous Father, that Peter picked this idea up in, in 1 Peter 3.18. Look at this amazing gospel reality. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God. There is that talk again of that indwelling, that togetherness. Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Justification, we call that, and it's not about living a good life where you can evade the fashion police or whoever your police are. Justification is that Jesus lived a perfect life and we were declared righteous. I conclude with something I think most of you either have seen this Christmas or will see. How many of you usually see It's a Wonderful Life? Are you familiar with this? Raise your hand if you have seen this at least once in your life. Okay. I think this little story, especially the ending, does talk about unity, community, and witness. We still watch this and get emotional. Elaine and the boys and I watched this, and I looked over my wife, and we are just crying. Why? Why does this movie have such staying power? Well, here's the scene that gets me every time. George Bailey, remember him? He goes to the evil Mr. Potter, a very righteous-looking man, toward the end of the movie where he has to ask for the $8,000 for the savings and loan company, which Uncle Billy, we all have an Uncle Billy, lost it. Of course, Mr. Potter has the $8,000 because Uncle Billy accidentally put it in a newspaper and gave it to Potter. But instead of giving George the $8,000, He gives George something else. I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you, George. Since the bank examiner is still here, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds. Manipulation. Malfeasance. He's getting kind of self-righteous, isn't he? Judgment. 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 George feels the worst. He goes off the rail, and his friends and his family worry about him, but they pray for him that God would intervene in a most unusual way. Let's fast forward to the final scene and use the set in some of the screenwriting directions to set the stage. He returns to his house, and he finds a big party, community, in unity is right there. All the people are there. They're putting money in a hat. They're very different people. But they're all putting money in a hat. Mary calls out and says, Mr. Martini, how about some wine? The script says that as various members of the family bring out a punch bowl and glasses, Janie, his daughter, sits down at the piano and strikes a chord, different notes, all working together, and starts to play a single song. Hark the herald, angels sing. And with one voice, the one crowd of very different people join in. People keep coming in. They're dropping their money on the table, even the bank examiner. And my favorite part, and it gets me emotionally, the sheriff with the warrant sheepishly looks at George, and he tears his warrant in small pieces, and he puts it in the pot of money. His warrant is torn in small pieces. Your warrants are torn in small pieces. The righteous Father has taken away the judgment against you. Jesus Christ has turned the courtroom of your life into a party. You are unified with the Father through the Son in the love of the Spirit. You're joined in community. And maybe as we end today, some of you need to tear up your little warrants that you have with one another. 
What would the world see if that happened? You are joined in community because Jesus prayed for it to go out and to witness this story of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we did not deserve to have your only son stop right there in front of that brook and pray for us. But he did, and we're going to take it. We're going to take this to the bank. We're going to believe that he, he addressed you as righteous father, and through his name, all of us here who have believed on you are perfectly off the hook. And we can now look at each other, and we can give love, and we can share. Lord, nine out of ten people in our area are not into this story. We ask that by your spirit you would bring a revival to our area. Ready us as a church tomorrow night as we bring our friends. Ready all of our churches that preach the gospel to swell with those that you are bringing close through your son and in your spirit. And Lord, forgive some of us. We are so clicky. We, we don't even think it's really a click because we just have great relationships. But Father, we are. Would you help each of us here to assess and repent of any inappropriate community that does not bring you glory because your son asked for it. We want to see it here because your son asked for it. It's in his name we beg these things. Amen.